Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We're in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through the end of the gospel of Luke, verse 53. I'll give you a moment to turn there with me. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he departed from heaven, from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do for us what Christ did for his disciples in this passage. We pray that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. Help us to understand your word this morning, Father. May it speak to our hearts and convict us of sin. May it point us to Christ and our hope in him. And God, in your word and with your word, send us out in this world to live for you and to be your ambassadors. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. First off, congratulations, Livingstone Church, on making it through 65 sermons on the Gospel of Luke. This is our 66th, and this is our last one. So only one more to go, and then we're in Prophet, Priest, and King, and then diving into the book of Hebrews. So, as many of you know, I am an avid fisherman. And as a fisherman, especially a fisherman who loves fishing in rivers, I know how important anchors are for you. Because if you don't have an anchor and you're trying to stay in one spot while you're fishing on this river, whether you're fishing for catfish or something else, if you don't have that anchor, it's hard to stay in one spot. And when you pull up the anchor, I know how quickly things begin to drift away. And this morning, as we look at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at the mission that Christ has given to his church. 
And he's going to show us the central part of the mission of God that Christ has given us to his church. And in a way, that central core mission functions as an anchor for the church. Because there are many, many things that we as individual Christians and as the church can be doing and should be doing in the world. But when we forget the central mission of the church, it's easy for all of those other things to drift away, to become disoriented and wrongly prioritized and misunderstood. And so we need to be crystal clear about the central purpose and mission for the church. And Christ is going to give us a compelling picture of that this morning. I want to I add for us one quick disclaimer as we hop into Luke 24. I've already mentioned this a bit. I'm not going to say all that there is to say about the mission of the church this morning. I'm not going to talk about all of the things that we can be doing or all of the things that we should be doing. And I'm not even going to say everything there is to say about the Great Commission. We'd have to look at the other Gospels and at Acts and actually to the rest of the Bible to get a fuller picture. For instance, in Matthew 28, Jesus in the Great Commission talks about making disciples. And he talks about baptizing. And I'm not going to be really talking about those things in depth today. So we're not going to be talking about everything there is to, to, to be said about the Great Commission and the mission of the church. But we are going to look here at Luke 24, the end of this gospel, to see what Christ has to say here about the central mission of the church. And if I was going to summarize this passage for us in one sentence, I would summarize it like this. Now, don't try writing this down because I always got uh, downgraded for run-on sentences and things like English growing up, and this is definitely one of those. So don't try writing this down. But I would summarize this passage in the church's mission as the church's mission is the spirit-empowered global proclamation of scripture's message about the death and resurrection of Christ, calling people to repent and be forgiven. Like I said, that's a mouthful. The church's mission is the spirit-empowered global proclamation of the scripture's message about the death and resurrection of Christ, calling people to repent and be forgiven. Now, that's not simple at all, so I'm not going to have that be our functional big idea for the message today. I'm going to break down this passage for us into three really simple sections. We're going to look at the foundation of the church's mission, the directions for the church's mission, and the hope of the church's mission. And you can remember that even with just three words, foundations, directions, and hope. So let's start looking now at the foundations of the church's mission. I call these things foundations because without these things firmly in place, the church's mission will go haywire. It cannot stand. It will drift away. So we're going to look at two foundations for the church's mission in this passage. And the first of those is the crucified and resurrected Christ. The crucified and resurrected Christ. So look with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to verses 36 through 43. And I want you to notice in these verses the emphasis on the physical nature of the resurrection of Christ. So this event and this passage 
took place right after our passage from last week, the Emmaus Road encounter, where Jesus showed himself to two disciples. And those two disciples, after Jesus had shown himself to them, they go back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples. And so those two, those two followers of Jesus are now in the room with the 11 disciples at this point. And they're talking and they're sharing stories and saying, this is what has happened. They're probably in a state of shock and awe. And right in the middle of that already probably crazy and emotional circumstance, Jesus shows up right in the room, supernaturally. He just shows up and says, here I am. And what does it say in the passage? It says in verse 37 that they were startled and frightened. And then notice this next phrase. It says, they thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a spirit. And you could also translate that word there in this context as a ghost. They thought they had seen a ghost. But Jesus, he wanted them to be absolutely sure that he was not a ghost. That he was not a spirit. That he was physically, tangibly there among his disciples. So he says to them in verse 38, Why are you so troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit or ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He says, look, I'm actually here. Come, touch me. See my hands. See my feet. I'm here. I am me, myself, in your presence, physically with you. Jesus quenched their unbelief by showing them himself. And then in verse 41 and 43, he goes on, he gives them another proof that he is really physically there with them. It kind of seems out of place that Jesus is saying, see, touch me. And does anybody have any fish to eat? It's like, what are you doing here, Jesus? It's not that he's hungry or he's, you know, desperately in need of some food. He wants them to give them a piece, him a piece of broiled fish so he can eat it in front of them so that they can see in eating that he is really physically there. So he's just reinforcing the same point that he's already made to them. Now the big question then is, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus physically rose from the dead? It matters because if Jesus Christ didn't physically rise, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. If Christ didn't physically rise from the dead, then we have no gospel. We have no good news because the curse of death due to us for sin hasn't been undone. If Christ didn't rise, then death was victorious. But we know that Christ did rise. He is risen indeed. That should be the refrain of the church, not just on Easter morning. That should always be the refrain of the church. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Our Savior is risen. Death and the devil have been defeated. The curse has been undone. And we can have hope not only in this life, but in the life to come, because we too will rise with Christ. And another important thing I want you to notice if you're looking at these verses, is he specifically told them to look at his hands and his feet. Why does Jesus specifically say, look at my hands and my feet? Jesus was showing them the nail wounds of his crucifixion. He wanted them to know 
that he, the risen Lord, was also the same one who had been crucified just three days earlier. As Tim Chester put it well, the Easter message is not only that someone has risen, the Easter message is that the crucified one has risen. And because Christ, the crucified one, has been risen, then we can know that Jesus' atoning death, his death in our place, was successful. We can know that Jesus accomplished what he set out to do in his death for us. So if there's one thing to take away from this first foundation of the church's mission, it's that the crucifixion and physical resurrection of Jesus That they are so necessary that if you do not have them, that you have no good news. And if you have no good news to proclaim, then you have no mission. So we need to heartily confess our crucified and risen Lord. So the first foundation is the crucified and resurrected Christ. Our second foundation for the mission of the church is the Christ-centered scriptures. Look with me here to verses 44 through 47. Here in this account, and in what we saw last week on the Emmaus Road account, we see that Jesus points his disciples to the scriptures. I want us to just consider for a second how significant that simple fact is. That Jesus, in appearing to his disciples after his resurrection, goes to great lengths to point out the scriptures to his disciples, that they would understand them. It says that he opened their their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus wants his disciples to clearly know the message of the Bible. So if you care at all about practical Christian living, if you care about evangelism and you care about missions, then make sure that you are steeped in the word of God. Make sure that you know the scriptures back to front, that you can describe the overarching storyline of the scriptures, because that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to know right after his resurrection. And the biggest thing I want us to recognize about the scriptures and that Jesus wanted to communicate about the scriptures to his disciples is that the scriptures are about Jesus. The scriptures are Christ-centered. Verse 44, look with me there. Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In this verse, Jesus is referencing the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. If you ever pick up a Hebrew Old Testament, in the language of Hebrew, it's divided up into the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, or sometimes just simplified as the Psalms. So when Jesus says everything written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, he's saying that the entirety of the Old Testament, and not just, you know, a few isolated prophecies, the whole thing is about Jesus himself. And I'm not going to be able to dive into every detail about how the whole Old Testament is about Jesus, so I just want to recommend two resources. First one, something we have on the back table. I know Josh just recommended one of these pamphlets. This one is, is Jesus in the Old Testament? It's a really simple reading. It walks through how we can see that Jesus Christ is the center 
of the entire Old Testament. The second one, I was going to bring it with me as a book. It's called Jesus on Every Page by, by David Murray. It's an incredible read, a great resource. Again, he walks through the whole of the scriptures to show this is how the scriptures point us to Christ. So again, if you are interested in either of those resources, talk to me, find the book back there, or you can even borrow Jesus on every page for me if you'd really like. Let's keep going. Verse 46, after Jesus opens the minds of his disciples, he says, thus it is written... So he's referencing the scriptures. Thus it is written in the scriptures that, and he has three things here, three things. Thus it is written that one, the Christ should suffer, two, and on the third day rise from the dead, and three, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So I want you, if you're here, to think back to your school days. Or if you are still a kid who's in school or a college student, you can maybe think back to this whole last school year, because you're probably right at the end of the school year, right? Yeah, most people are ending. So I want you to think back to your time in school or to this last year of school. Did you ever have to do any book reports? I'm assuming you had to do book reports. I, I love reading. I didn't always love doing book reports but I do love books. One of the essential parts to a good book report is having an ability to simply summarize the big idea of the book that you just read, right? You want to be able to, maybe in a sentence or in a simple outline, say, this is what the book is about. This is how the author is telling their story or presenting their argument. And when you can do that, you know the book pretty well. So I want you to imagine for a second that someone comes up to you, maybe the teacher you had in third grade all of a sudden sees you at the grocery store for some odd reason, and they say, I want you to write me a book report on the entire Bible. How would you, in that moment, simply summarize the message of the entirety of Scripture? Well, I think a good place to start for that book report would be Jesus' phrase right here. Because Jesus gives us a simple summary of the storyline of the whole Bible. And it's those three things, that the Christ should suffer, that he should die. Second, that he should rise from the dead. And then third, that the good news of Jesus and his death and resurrection should be proclaimed to all nations, calling people to repent and and to have forgiveness of their sins. That is the message of the whole scripture. And until we understand that central mission of Scripture and central message of Scripture, then I don't think that we can understand what we're supposed to be doing in this world. I don't think we can understand our mission until we understand what the Scriptures are actually about. So our two foundations for the mission of the church are the crucified and resurrected Christ and the Christ-centered Scriptures. So now we're going to look at our second main point, the directions for the church's mission. The directions for the church's mission. So let's look, uh, look with me here to verses 46 through 48. And these verses, together with verse 49, are often known as the Great Commission of the Gospel of Luke. And there are four parts that I want us to see about this mission that Christ gives to his disciples. And these are the four directions, and I'll walk through each of these briefly. 
Christ is the message. Repentance is the call. Forgiveness is the goal. And the nations are the target. Christ is the message. Repentance is the call. Forgiveness is the goal. And the nations are the target. If you just want four words, Christ, repentance, forgiveness, nations. You'll probably be able to follow and understand this. So first, Christ is the message. I don't think I should have to prove this point after our last point. The message of the whole of scriptures is Christ himself. And the heart of our message should be the same as the heart of God's message in the scriptures. Which again is the message of Christ. So if our message is centered on anything other than the Christ of the scriptures, then we have, as a church, a very serious problem. Christ is the heart of our message. And that's what Christ is talking about when he talks about witness bearing in verse 48. He says, you will be witnesses. The disciples in the mission that Christ gave weren't called to go out into the world and make up some fancy, trendy new message to convince people to become Christians. They were called to go and proclaim what they had witnessed with their eyes. What had they witnessed? They had witnessed the life, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In calling them witness bearers, he was saying, I am your message. What you have seen about me is the thing that you are called to go and proclaim. And when we are called to be witness bearers, it's not because like the disciples, we have physically with our eyes seen Christ die and rise from the dead. But we have witnessed Christ. We have seen him and known him and been changed by him as we have encountered him in his word. Word. So Christ, his person, who he is and what he has done, that is our message. Christ is what we proclaim. And then second, repentance is the call. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then verse 47, look with me there. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. We need to recognize that the message that we proclaim is a message that demands a response from the people who hear it. And I think that that's probably the hardest part for me when I go and do evangelism. I have a fairly easy time sitting down with somebody and talking with them about the message of the scriptures and talking with them about Jesus and Jesus' death and his resurrection. But the hard part for me is then following up on that basic message to say, you need to do something with this message that I have given you. You need to respond to this message. You need to turn from your sin. You need to trust in Christ. And I think... In our, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth type world, it's really hard for us to say and proclaim, no, there is one truth. There is a single truth, and you need to deal with that single truth. It demands something of you as the hearer of that message. And again, what is that call? What is that response? Jesus in this passage says, repentance. Repentance, it's understanding the seriousness of our sin. 
in understanding the mercy of God that has been shown to us in Christ. It's, it's found in turning away from our sin, turning to God, to trust Him, to live a new life, to have new obedience. And although Jesus doesn't mention it directly in this passage, we've said it a lot before that to call someone to repentance is also to call them to faith. That repentance and faith are not two radically different things, but we like to say that they're two sides of the same coin. One theologian, John Frame, I think he says it in a helpful way, that repentance and faith are the same thing viewed from two different perspectives. Repentance and faith are the same thing viewed from two different perspectives. And I want you to take this example for just a moment. Imagine that it's 15 minutes from now, and we're 15, maybe 20. I don't know how long this is going to go, right? And we're standing here after the, the church service, and we're talking, as we kind of always do here at Livingstone Church. Imagine that my wife Lexi is over in that corner talking with Susan Frazier. And I am standing, hi Susan, I'm standing up here talking with Zach Frazier. And I want to get Lexi's attention. So I call over to Lexi on the other side of the room. Hey, Lexi. And Lexi turns away from Susan Frazier. Sorry, Susan, you're sin in this example. I hope that's not like offensive to you. Turns away from Susan and Lexi looks at me. In a way, there are two turnings that are taking place in that moment. Lexi is turning away from Susan and Lexi is also turning toward me. But how many times did Lexi turn? Lexi only turned once. There was really ultimately only one turning that took place. And that's how repentance and faith work. That in repentance, we turn away from our sin. And in faith, we turn to God to trust in Jesus Christ. And really, you can't have one without the other. It's two sides of the same coin. So when we go and we call people to turn from their sin, we also call them to turn to God, to look to Jesus, to look to the Jesus that we proclaim in the scriptures, to trust in him and to know that his work is sufficient for their salvation. So Christ is the message, repentance is the call, and third, forgiveness is the goal. Look again at verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Forgiveness is specifically the forgiveness of sins. Sin is our rebellion against God. Sin is our attempt at having independence from God. It's an internal heart issue that manifests itself outwardly in us not doing what God commanded us to do and in actively doing the things that he has forbidden us to do. And we see in Genesis 2 and in Romans 6.23 that the result or wages for our sin is death. And that's a problem for us because as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. This is a problem for all of mankind, not just for me, not just for the bad person out there, but for every person sitting in this pew, our primary problem is sin itself. And the message that we proclaim is the forgiveness of sins, that our primary problem is dealt with. 
And that's why the center of our mission as the church needs to be the proclamation of the gospel. Because Christ has given us a message that deals with the primary problem of the world. That we can have forgiveness because Christ bore our sins on himself on the tree. And that he rose and defeated the curse of sin and death in his resurrection. We have good news to proclaim. And that's the forgiveness of sins. And then lastly... The nations are the target. The nations are the target. Look with me to verses 47 again and 48. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Where? To all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is very similar to what Jesus says to his disciples Right before his ascension in Acts, Acts 1.8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then going out from Jerusalem in all Judea, and then in all of Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Through the New Testament, we see, and specifically in the book of Acts, we see the gospel going out, spreading from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And that is still Jesus' mission on this earth. That Jesus is calling lost sheep from every tribe and people and language. He's calling them to know him and to be reconciled to him. And there are a few implications of that for us as Livingstone Church. First, we need to have a global view of the mission of the church. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes... We can have a hyper focus on ourselves, whether it's ourselves as a church or ourselves as a city, or even ourselves as America and and our problems and what we need to do here. But we need to have a view that goes above that. We need to have a view for the mission of God that includes and embraces the entirety of the world and every nation and every people group and every language. We need to have a bigger view than we often have. And second, We need, as a church and individually, to find ways to engage in the work of global missions. Whether that's actually going yourself, or whether it's praying or supporting or engaging somehow in sending, we need to personally be engaged in this. And I want to challenge you a little bit here. If you don't have a personal or family budget for supporting the work of missions, then I would encourage you to do that. God has given his people in America abundant wealth compared to most of the world. And we need to say, how can we use the things that God has given us toward the end of the nations hearing the gospel? And that's probably going to include your wallets and say, this is God's too, and this is for him. And then third, to balance my first point, that sometimes we can be hyper-focused on us and on America— At the same time, we need to recognize that Oshkosh and America are part of the nations, right? We are part of the nations. I want you to think for just a second, ponder this, because I think this is pretty incredible. Think about Livingstone Church as a church that is here in Oshkosh in 2021, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to think about that from the perspective of those disciples in that room with Jesus. That 2,000 years later, over 6,000 
200 miles away from the room that they were sitting in, that there would be a church on a whole other continent that is preaching the message that Jesus has given to his disciples. That is evidence that God is still doing this. God is still working and Livingstone Church is a part of that global mission that God has given to his church. So let's be faithful here in the place that he has set us for this time of our life to proclaim the message of Jesus to our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our classmates, and anybody that we know or run into. Because that is our calling here as a church and as individuals. The directions that Jesus gives for his church should make the center of our mission crystal clear for us. The central part of our mission is to proclaim something. It's to proclaim Jesus, crucified and risen. To proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. That is the center. That is what we do. And then last, I'm going to look at this briefly here. Just the, the last point I want us to see is the hope of the church's mission. The hope of the church's mission. In this life... There can be so many different sources of discouragement for us as we try to engage in the mission, mission that Jesus has given us. We can see sometimes the drifting away of many churches and even some whole denominations that have lost the gospel, that are no longer engaging in the mission of proclaiming the gospel. That is a discouragement. It saddens us. We can see hostility. We can see people just not responding. And we can even just think simply of the overwhelming nature of bringing the gospel to the, to the nations. This is something that is so beyond what we ourselves can do. And that can be discouraging. But look at the last verses of this passage. Do you see the disciples walking away discouraged and despondent and sad? No. The disciples walk away from what Jesus has given them encouraged, full of joy, and full of worship. Why? That's what I want to look at here. Because there is hope for us. We're going to look at three things. First, the unbreakable word. Again, we've already mentioned this. But just as the whole of scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament testifies to the death and resurrection of Christ, so we've seen that the whole of scripture testifies to the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. And we can have confidence because God has said that he will do it. And so he will. We can be just as sure that the gospel will go forward as we can be sure that Christ died and was risen because it is the message of scripture. So that is hope and good news for us. Second, our hope is in the empowering spirit. Look at verse 49. Jesus said... And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm sending the Holy Spirit upon you. He says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's an interesting phrase. Jesus says, before you go, I'm telling you to wait. Think about that. I gave you a mission. Go to all the nations. But, but before you go... Your first task is actually to wait. Why is their task to wait? It's because the mission that God has given them is way beyond their ability to do on their own. And Jesus wants that to be crystal clear to them. That their calling must be accomplished by God himself. 
And so Christ sent his Holy Spirit to work in his people and to work even in the people that we go to. God, by the Spirit, is the one who does the work of missions. And that's great because it takes all of the weight being on our shoulders and says we can go freely and with confidence because we know that God will work by his Spirit. And then our last source of hope is the ascended Christ. So look with me to the last verses, 50 through 53. Jesus led them out of Jerusalem. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he was carried up into heaven. This is the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ is great hope for the mission of the church. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down. He sat down enthroned as our king. And Jesus was reigning, and he will reign, and he reigns now until all of his enemies will be put under his feet. The ascension of Christ, him going up into heaven away from his disciples, didn't mean that he left his church leaderless. It means exactly the opposite, that now the church has a reigning king who is in heaven, who has given us his spirit, who will accomplish his work. And I also love that Jesus blessed his disciples here. He lifted up his hand, just like Josh does at the end of the sermon, or the end of the service, and he gave them a benediction, is really what Jesus is doing here. He gave them a benediction as he departed. And we can know that we live and move and we go forward from here and engage with the world. And we do all of that going out with the blessing of Jesus. That he blesses us and has given his church a benediction, and he, again, will do his work. Christ has given his church a mission to proclaim him as our dying and rising Savior, that the world might know him. And this is a hope-filled and joy-filled task that Jesus has given us. The disciples, they don't walk away sad or discouraged. They walk away joyful and worshipful. And let's be like those disciples today. Because we're not staying in the sanctuary forever. We are going to receive a benediction today. And we are going to be sent out into the world today. And let's go out with joy. Let's go out with worship. And let's go out centered on the mission of Christ that he has given to us as a church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us directions in your word for how we are to live and how we are to engage in this world. And it is a discouraging thing sometimes when people don't respond to the gospel message. When we see the results of sin in the lives of people and we desperately desire that they would know you. But God, we have, you have given us confidence and hope in our mission through Christ through his spirit, and through your word. So we ask that you would give us boldness to go out from here today and to engage in the mission that you have given us. Help us to be faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ wherever we go. We pray this in his name. Amen.